Hello and welcome to the Musician's Journey. My name is Ragnhild Wesenberg and I have some great news for all of you, though specifically for some of you, which is that this spring there will be a focus on the cello. There will be interviews with cellists and also episodes where it'll be just me talking about cello playing. And if after today you're hungry for more cello straight away, you can go and listen to the interviews with Wilma Pistorius, Maya Friedman, Erik Hammerfors and Emily Wright that I did earlier on this podcast. And of course you can enjoy lots of interviews with cellists on the Cello Sherpa podcast which is made by today's guest Joe. Joel Dallow. He has more than 20 years of experience with professional orchestral and chamber music playing and if you need a cello teacher to guide you towards a successful audition you can read more at thecellosherpa.com. That's the first website mention of this introduction. Now over to the second which is theboxworkshop.com. That's the website of the box which is an online community that I have been a part of for the last nine months. It's the place where my never-ending projects are verbalized and structured so that they can cease to be never-ending but actually ending. So that's theboxworkshop.com and you'll get 30% off for your first month with the code CELLO, C-E-L-L-O, at checkout. Oh, and there's a third website that deserves some mention here. And that is my own website, ragnilvesenberg.com, where you can sign up for video tutorials and sheets and articles, as well as one-on-one lessons. As a listener of this podcast, you get 15% off with the code TMJP, short for the Musician's Journey podcast. And if all of these websites and codes are too much to remember... You'll find them all spelled out in the show notes. Okay, website number four, and this is the last one. On Spotify, I have put together a playlist called The Musician's Journey Podcast, and it's made up of tracks by guests here. So go there if you want to expand your horizon of music and discover some so-called smaller artists. Ah, no, I'm not going to say smaller artists. I'll say lesser-known artists who nevertheless make mind-blowing music and deserve to be played much more than they are currently. And when you find someone you particularly like, there are many ways you can support them. You can do something as simple as signing up for their newsletter or follow them on uh, YouTube or Facebook or wherever they are. And you can make them super happy and actually purchase their music from their website or Bandcamp or Apple or something. That's it. I'll now hand it over to Joel Dallow to explain why his Instagram went from being about animals and nature to suddenly only cello related things. Strange, huh? The only thing that can go wrong now is the internet connection. Yes. But that's uh, something we can't really back up, or maybe it's possible, but I'm not able to do those types of things. Yeah, yeah. I, I have yeah. limited knowledge on this whole thing, too. It was a big learning process. I just finished. Uh, it's, I've been at this for two years now. I started on March 8th, two years ago. And it's uh, you know, it's definitely been a big learning curve, trying to figure out how to edit and 
post episodes and all of that, but I had a good mentor yeah. that helped me, fortunately. Oh, you were luckier than me then, because we are both cellists who yep. have been podcasting for the past two years. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but you were lucky to have a mentor. I was not, so I... I had a lot of nerve-wracking moments of just being feeling really lucky that I have a very, very small audience. And in the beginning, there was probably no audience. So, you know, the, <laughs> I could I could make some mistakes and no one would notice. Yeah. And people, are, I think I've found they're pretty forgiving. I'm super picky about what I put out there. And my wife is sometimes like, I think you're pickier than you need to be, you know, um, but I want it to be. A certain level and that's what I've been aiming for and uh, I really enjoy it I'm sure you're finding the same thing meeting all kinds of interesting people and having them come on and share their wisdom is is really special so uh, it's like the only medium left where you can interview people without having to pay them <laughs> you know right so. I was actually wanting to ask you about that because you are uh, you know established you've had a a proper income as a cellist for a, a couple of decades and making a podcast takes time and energy and what made you decide to actually spend this energy on this you know you have a family you have you have enough to do really well i started podcasting because over the pandemic was a good time to reevaluate how i was spending my time and I was playing in the orchestra. I have three kids, and I was running a chamber music series for 17 years called Riverside Chamber Players. And that came to a screeching halt along with a lot of Atlanta Symphony concerts because of the pandemic and gave me some time to reflect on what I wanted to do moving forward. I sort of felt that I had run my course on the chamber music series. As much as I loved doing it, it was a lot of work organizing players. It was a lot of work organizing donations, which is probably the most frustrating part about running a nonprofit. And I also was just feeling like I needed a change and the pandemic forced us all to stop. So I started thinking about, and here's the other thing that was difficult too, is looking ahead once the symphony started to pick up a schedule again, and we were able to jump back into maybe producing chamber music concerts, the schedule was much busier. And I felt like it was going to be really challenging to fit rehearsals for a chamber music series and concerts into the schedule that we were looking at, which is good. We want to be busier. Obviously, the more that we play, the better it is for our organization. So I thought I would take a pause. And I realized that what's important to me, I just turned 50 this past summer, is to try and give something back. This is such a difficult profession for all of us to find our niche, to make our way in whatever we're aiming for, that I wanted to produce something that would, that I wished had been there when I was trying to make it as a professional musician, or at least working my way through school and, and my path. And access to information now is so much more incredible than it was when I was going through school trying to learn excerpts and practicing and thinking about what I was going to do and getting information from people to help, the only way you could get it is go take a lesson, meet with somebody, probably pay them, get their advice and move forward that way. So I thought, what would have helped me the most 
if I could do that now. And I thought, podcast, what a great medium. We can get all these experts to come on, talk about what they're passionate about, share their wisdom, their advice, their journeys, and hopefully that will help the next generation behind us to help them pave the way to be successful and maybe answer some questions that they wouldn't be able to get to answer. So this is about providing access for everybody. Literally anybody can listen to a podcast to experts that normally you might have to pay $100, $200 for an hour lesson to get a little piece of what they're coming on and graciously offering to our audience. So that was part of it. I always, growing up, I always enjoyed listening to talk shows on the radio and things of that nature. So I sort of dreamed about doing something where I could interview people. And this just popped up as a great way to do it. And the name The Cello Sherpa came from many long walks with my wife talking about what would be a good name for not just a podcast, but maybe a website. And we landed on the idea of Sherpa because you cannot climb to the top of a mountain if you're not in shape. But having a Sherpa will help get you there. And we thought it's a perfect analogy because if you don't practice, you're not going to get any better if you take lessons. But if you take lessons with somebody who knows how to help you get better and you do the things to keep yourself in shape and to continue to work on your own, then I can hopefully help guide you to that mountaintop that you're aiming for. That's a beautiful analogy. Thank you. Um, have you received response to this? I've received a lot of response, actually. It's been really tremendous. The podcast has been downloaded in 88 countries as of checking yesterday. I would say the numbers aren't as big as a true crime prod podcast, but they're definitely, <laughs> uh, I think, for this niche market that we're looking at, it's getting a lot of interest. And more importantly, just getting feedback from my colleagues. What was most interesting to me was my goal was to produce something that was good for young musicians, maybe young professional musicians also. So maybe from middle school up until after you graduate college and maybe you're trying to get a job or figure out where you're going to go, what your path is. But I've found that a lot of my colleagues started listening to it. And I was hoping they'd listen to it and then tell their students about it. But people seem very interested in the stories and they seem interested in the guests and obviously not every guest is for every person but the feedback has been tremendous and it's and I've had nothing but really incredible support which I'm extremely grateful for because it's been very reward, rewarding just to sit down and talk to so many people but also to have enough people listening to it that I feel like it's worth my time and energy and also mm. to to add to that my children are grown my youngest is out of college so I'm not in a position where I'm at home with small children all the time, taking up my extra time. I have a great steady job. I'm in my 24th season of the Atlanta Symphony. So that's a really positive aspect of my life that I don't have to worry about. I can, it's, a, it's a huge relief to know that I have a paycheck coming every week and I have a schedule that's laid out for the year in advance. And there are obviously always some downsides that you trade for that sort of comfort, but it's been great for me and given me the stability that I need in my life to raise a family and then be able to pursue the things outside of the orchestra 
that I'm passionate about. And for a long time, that was chamber music. And now I feel like teaching and mentoring and coaching is where my passion outside of the orchestra is, is heading these days. I was actually curious about the, your long career in orchestral playing, because I remember when I was studying, uh, so this is yeah, 10 plus years ago, and my cello teacher could tell the times we had an orchestral project in school because I had a completely different way of playing a solo piece. It was like I had, I wasn't really in touch with this soloist quality because when playing in orchestra, it, for the most part, you know, I, I don't hear myself because it's all about blending in, yeah. which is a completely different mindset from playing a solo piece and it was a little hard for me to switch between the two and I'm so impressed by those who are playing in orchestra so much and at the same time are able to step into the the chamber music role where you have to uh, be much more of a soloist all of a sudden how is this for you is that a conscious shift you know I really think that playing in an orchestra is chamber music on a large scale it's a little bit, you don't have the same autonomy because you have to think constantly for yourself and count for yourself and be independent. So you don't have a conductor that's helping you shape a phrase or keep it together with a specific beat pattern and that kind of thing. So there's more of that autonomy than you get in an orchestra, but the same skills really apply. It's about listening to what's happening around you, taking in not just what is being waved with a stick, but also what is the concertmaster doing? What is the front stand of violins doing? What is the violist sitting next to you doing? Or the principal violist, the principal bass? What are the winds and brass doing? And I think you have to take all of that into account really through nanoseconds of trying to figure out where to place things, along with also making sure that you're playing with your section and that you're paying attention to the front stand of your section also as to when you're supposed to play and what part of bow you should be in and what sort of articulation to use. So I think the skill, I think, is really the same. It's just a, a bigger scale and slightly different. But we want to all be thinking about chamber music when we're playing. And I think to really play as part of a true section, everybody needs to contribute enough to hear themselves but not stick out. So it's sort of this mm. happy balance between finding what's the right level of voice that fits with nine or 11 other people, depending on how big your section is, and really going with that and learning how to play with your stand partner that is next to you or the stand that's in front of you and really working for as a cohesive unit. So for me, I think orchestra is just large chamber music. Solo playing, sitting in front of an orchestra and playing a concerto, that's, I think, a pretty different skill, but still comes from the same place. I mean, music is all about expression and giving a voice to something and shaping things in a specific way. And it can change depending on who's on the podium, or it can change depending on who you're playing chamber music with. And the skill, I think, that is the hardest for me and that I do the least sitting in front of an orchestra and playing a concerto I think is is different because you're really taking the bull by the horns and have that lead voice. But at the same time, you still have to always have that ear back to chamber music. So I think some of the best musicians that we've hired 
and that have fit into the orchestra really well are people that have a strong chamber music background. Mm, yeah. At this point, what is your impression of, say, the status of classical music today? Does it feel to you like it's thriving with a, a growing appreciative audience or does it feel like the audience is dying out? I think this conversation has been going on for over a hundred years. If you you look back, you can pull up articles from the 1930s and 40s and 50s talking about the demise of the symphony orchestra. And you might think if you didn't know when they were written that they were written yesterday. So I think that this struggle is real and I think it's been going on for a long time. But I think the more creative an organization is, the more successful they can be. So I don't think it's dying. I think it's just changing. So, for example, the model's slightly different. People used to buy season tickets to an orchestra. Well, now a lot more people buy single tickets. They buy single concerts. So you have to work more actively to market to the people that are interested in buying tickets in a different way. So that changes that a little bit. But at the same time, those single ticket sales have gone way up and the audiences are also getting younger, which I think is also encouraging because it was always the common thought that only the older generations support this. But I don't think that's true if you look around now and you look at the audience. And I think that the biggest thing that we need to be aware of is not just performing the things that we all love to play and the things that we feel like we went to school for, but also creating programming that is pushing the audience in one one hand, pushing them to listen maybe outside their comfort zone, but not all the time. You do that some, and then you have to have a balance of all the great favorites that will bring people back to the hall, and then introducing new and creative ventures with different pops groups, different maybe arts organizations that are looking at things in a different way so that you're always thinking about how to stay creative. So here's an example. If you look at a company like Kodak, growing up Kodak was the camera company and you had all these places where you could go and develop your pictures and of course we didn't know what was going to be on our roll of film before we took it there. But when that shifted over to digital, some companies like Kodak really didn't adjust in the way that they needed to. Now, they're still around and they're still successful, but the companies that knew how to change and be flexible with the coming trends have been more successful. So I think it's a lot of that type of thing, thinking about, well, number one, we're here to serve our public. So how do we do that? Do we play only pop shows because that's what sell the best? Well, I would say no, but I think that if you do enough of those to help fund some of the projects that maybe won't sell as well, you're still presenting as a cultural institution, you're presenting works of art that are relevant to today, whether it's a current composition that somebody wrote that should be heard and maybe won't sell as many tickets because people are afraid of that or they don't know the name or there's not a Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on it to really sell the tickets. You can be smart about how you couple those things too. So maybe you have a Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony, which we've played a million times, 
with a new composition and you find ways to balance out that will continue to drive people to the hall, but also bringing new and creative products or new and creative products, I think is the wrong word, Hmm. (laughs) productions that people will be interested in and you know will sell well that will help fund the things that won't sell as well. So I think if you look at it as a, we're a living, breathing form of art. Art serves many different purposes, modern art, uh, antiquated art you have different periods of art you can have different exhibits I think it's the same thing we're just living and breathing and changing with the times and trying to be creative as possible to get people to continue to come hear us and we're competing with a lot of things these days (laughs) sporting events TVs I mean there's so many channels on TV that people can sit home and watch you can stay home and you can stream the Berlin Phil any day of the week if you are a member of that and watch it on your 70-inch TV. So there's lots of ways to compete that are challenging, but at the same time, there's nothing like live music. And I think the pandemic showed a lot of people that not having that was a huge loss in their life. And I think that audiences have been coming back and coming back potentially in bigger numbers than even before that. Because when you lose it, that's sometimes when you know how important it is. Mm. Absolutely. I feel I'm uh, coming back more to the the incredible value of of simply acoustic music. Mm-hmm. Um, as if I've gone through um, a century on my own for the past few years. It's because I have been playing a little bit with... Uh, with amp- like in settings where the sound is amplified, where there are cables and amps and and there has to be a computer involved and the electricity and so many things can go wrong. And doing this, I just appreciate the the acoustic music more and more. And to be in a in a concert hall where there are how many people are there in an orchestra? Hundred? I think our set number is around 88, so it varies a little bit. But, yeah, around around 90 to 100, I think, in most orchestras. Yeah, to have, like, a group, like, a substantial group of people, and there is no electricity involved except for the lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there is something so so magical about that. I wouldn't be surprised if more and more people realize that yeah and it is really amazing when you start thinking about the things that make up an orchestra the age of the instruments the value of the instruments the history of the instruments all the wood that's on stage where that came from all the fingers that are working together all the years of practice the years of training combined with each other everybody on stage there's so much that goes into making this art form that's really unique and incredible that I don't think a lot, I think it's lost on a lot of people if you don't spend time thinking about it. But if you sit in a concert hall and hear it and see it, it's really special and magical, unlike a lot of other things. (laughs) Yes, and it's never the same. I mean, as a listener, you're never the same from day to day. That's just one thing. But also the conductor uh, would... uh, do it differently on one day and a different day and uh, all the players in the orchestra also you know it's 
we just react to our current state of mind at all time. There is something so immediate and and unique about this uh, orchestral experience. Yeah. Are, are you the, sorry? <laughs> keep, I was going to ask you if you're wearing earplugs when you do the electronic things. Is it is oh, it super yeah. loud? Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, I always have uh, these. Um, well, either I use in-ear monitors, which also function like uh, like earplugs, mm-hmm. or I I always have with me now these specially molded earplugs that uh, you know you can use in an orchestra and in chamber music. Yeah, I have them with me all the time because now. Uh, so much is amplified that really doesn't need to be amplified. I've been to concerts with jazz, mm-hmm. and even though it's a fairly small room and it would have probably sounded really nice acoustic, they just uh, they just amplify everything, and then I just have to put in my earplugs, and I'm thinking, what the what's the point with this? <laughs> yeah, and even unamplified, you still have trombones, trumpets, piccolo. And sometimes yeah. uh, the wind instruments can get extremely loud or they bounce a certain way off the hall that it can be incredibly in- uncomfortable. So I'm a big advocate of wearing earplugs. I always start with my right ear first because I don't like covering the left ear. If I, if I, oh, if I yeah. don't have to, I want to hear more of... The biggest challenge when you're playing the, a string instrument is that you put an earplug in, you can't hear the delicacy of a shift anymore. So if you mm. have to play something that's really high and you're trying to hear how you arrive there, you can't get that anymore with an earplug. So it's a little bit riskier in that way. So I have a 15 decibel lowering plug in my right ear and then I have a nine in my left when I really need it. And I and I try and monitor it that way. And I will write in my part, plug in, plug out. So I, I'm usually wow. balancing it up and down. Now, if it's a pop show and it's amplified and there's monitors, the earplugs will stay in in both ears the whole time because yeah. it can get really loud. And luckily, my body will tell me this is too loud and it's uncomfortable and it hurts. And then I know put in an earplug. Yes. Um, we're both cellists. I just have to make sure I ask you, uh, because now I'm teaching more than I have done before, and there are these questions that <laughs> comes up. And one of them has to do with wintertime. Now, I know you are in, is it Georgia? Yes, Atlanta, Georgia. Yes. Yes. How is that in wintertime? Does your cello get dry and cold? Do you have to do something about the humidity? It does get dry, but it's very mild here. So, for example, if I lived in the Northeast, I grew up outside of New York, I would have to have a winter bridge. So I would change out the bridge seasonally to make sure the strings kept the proper height. But here in Atlanta, I find that I just monitor the humidity and when it drops below 45% or so in my house first, that's the first place that I'll check, I will put a dampet in the cello. But I will wring that dampet out and I also use a base dampet because it holds, I don't want to hold more water, but I want to have more volume there so that I don't have to fill it up every six hours like you might have to with a cello dampet. So I use a base dampet, but I wring out all the excess water and I put it in my cello, which was made in 1750. So it's definitely very aware of whatever the humidity change is. And I can tell it, it will sound less happy 
when it's dry. So that's the main thing is just being careful of the humidity. And when I leave the house and I know it's going to be dry, I'll definitely put a damp it in. I would say that I finished my basement studio off and I pay close attention to what the humidity is in this room. And again, if it drops below 45%, that's usually when I'll put a damp it in. But it tends to stay mostly around 50%. And I think our... Our heat in the house is forced air here instead of radiators, and most most of Atlanta is like that, and that tends to be drier than if you have radiator heat, which is older style and not as available in this area anymore. I think probably not as efficient either, hmm. at least as far as cost. Right. <laughs> so. Okay. Okay, so now I'm thinking I should first of all get something that measures the humidity. I've just so far been pretty lazy. For the whole winter uh, season, I just have dumpets in there mm-hmm. all the time. And then I'm hoping for the best. Well, you can but, just, even if you just look at your weather app on your phone, mm. that'll tell you what the, at least the relative humidity is outside to give you some indication. And you know yeah. that if it's going to if you have storms coming in and it's going to rain for a period of time that your humidity obviously is going to go way up and then you might not need the damp it. But also part of it is you put the damp it in, take it out to go play, put it back in when you're not playing. There's a lot of fluctuation too. So not everybody believes in using them either because the natural fluctuation might be easier on the instrument. So there's, it's a mixed bag. But I find when it gets really dry, it definitely makes a difference. And even the pegs on the instrument will slip more if it's not humid enough. So a damp it weirdly seems to help with that too. Wow. I haven't noticed that myself. That's something to be aware of. I I recently started an online cello course on my website with videos that I'm uh, like adding to and uh, I've recently started writing articles and I wrote one about dampets but however now I've started one to do with the history of the cello and that's something I'm doing maybe most for myself because I realize during my studies so many years of studies and there was really nothing about the history of my instrument yeah and uh, I first I searched for a podcast, I searched like cello history and I didn't really find anything uh, satisfying. And now I'm so I'm on the vast ocean of the Internet now trying to grab hold of some articles here and there and to get uh, an idea of of how it looked like. Uh, it's super interesting and I'm a little embarrassed. I have to I'm, I'm 33 now. And uh, it took me such a long time to start to get into into this. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, not a lot, (laughs) to be honest (laughs) with you. What I but what I it strikes me as interesting. I just released a podcast today, actually, with the University of Iowa professor. His name is Anthony Arnone, and he interviewed thirteen famous cellists and wrote a book about it called "The Art of Listening." So it's it's a great book. And it's really fascinating because he spends time getting information from all of these experts. But one of the things we talked about is how in school, 
we spend so much time talking about how to play the cello, and that's what you learn from your teacher. But no time, as you just pointed out, on really the history of our individual instrument. I mean, there's music history mm -hmm. that we all have to take, but specific to an instrument. So that's not part of our education. At least it wasn't when I was going through school, and apparently not for you either. No. But he also said, and I find this just as fascinating, that nobody teaches you how to teach either. So right. <laughs> yeah. you you get out and one of the first things we all do as professional musicians is start teaching because we have to make a living. And it's sort of trial by fire and learn from what you were taught. And it's just this passing down from generation of generation to teaching rather than here's how you teach someone. <laughs> so you have to go back and dissect your own learning experience to figure out how maybe you can teach this new beginner student and you just got out of school and what can you do with this person to explain to them how you started so mm. it's it's fascinating because i think unfortunately it means that we end up with a lot of guinea pigs when we first start teaching that yes. need to yes. learn to see what works and doesn't work and what books work and what books don't work. And that process took me a while to really figure out. And I would say, same thing with the cello. I have no, not spent a lot of time thinking about the history of the cello itself. So I'll be interested to see what you have to say about it and write about it for sure. I was thinking of even making a podcast episode about it. Uh, maybe I'm not very good at choosing my keywords when I search for things. But uh, if I managed to come up with a podcast episode on it, I, yeah, it didn't seem to be a lot, a lot more. I guess uh, maybe in podcasts talking, going really into music history, I'm sure they talk about these things. But uh, yeah, I'll go for think... like a short one specifically on the cello. Yeah, and I think one place you might find some of those answers is by talking to trained instrument makers. So I interviewed last season, I think it was last season, I can't remember now, but I interviewed the owner of Voss Violins, who's a local violin maker. And she talked some about the history, about the standardization of the size of instruments. Why if mm. you run into an instrument from the 17 and 1800s that there's so many different sizes, they're not all the same. And that it wasn't really standardized, I think she said until the mid-1800s is when they decided to standardize what a full-size cello is. Before mm -hmm. that, instruments were made for customers. And before we had recordings, CDs, records, ways of reproducing music, amateur music making was what a lot of people did with their lives. So if they wanted a cello that would be fit specifically to them, they'd go to the local maker and have one made to them. So there's a lot of variety when it comes to size. So that might be a place where you get some of that background you're looking for also. And I'm sure there's a lot yeah. of, there must be a lot of articles on it, just not a lot of people talking about it. Hmm. I just thought of uh, something we don't learn as well, which is funny, which is uh, uh, maintenance of our instrument. Did you learn that when you were studying or the anatomy of the instrument? the sound post and the role it has and the just uh, basic maintenance stuff? Really only just by a teacher looking at the bridge or looking at the strings and looking at the bow hair and sort of instructing me what to do. I, yeah. I, and I think what you're pointing out here, which is really important, is that learning to play the instrument is so 
all-encompassing that the other parts around it get left behind because yeah. there's it's such a lifetime of trying to get better at this craft better and better and better that there ends up being little time to discuss the other things and again i'd say the same thing that talking to instrument makers and instrument repair people is a great source of information for those kinds of things doing maintenance and the history of the instrument they they seem to know the most in those areas because it, it's more aligned i think with what their training involves yeah I recently watched a video that Al Luthier had made in the process of making a cello where he positions the the perf line, the purfling. Uh-huh. No one ever told me anything about that, the role of it. Uh, I, I remember once, many years ago, I was just looking at my cello. I was sitting with it and I was looking at these two thin black lines that follows the shape of the whole instrument. And I was like, it has to be painted on. Or, <laughs> like, I, I just, uh, it didn't really look painted on, but I just couldn't imagine how it could be there without being painted on. And it just blows my mind what seeing how the luthiers make this thin, thin, um, yeah, what to say, like a ditch, <laughs> like a around the instrument. And then they place this thing into it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Is, it is. What, is there a practical purpose for that other than design? Because I'm not aware of one. Uh, I, I read somewhere on the web that it does have a purpose. I can't remember right now. And it it was uh, written in a slightly vague w way as well. So I should definitely do like you say, talk to a luthier, you know, gather my questions and contact a luthier and make an interview of some kind and ask all of this. Yeah, yeah. I think that'd be a great <laughs> episode. Yeah, I think so too. At least for me, it would be great for me. <laughs> uh, I'm also really curious about I guess the niche you have found for yourself, because when I started teaching, which was very uh, recent, I just went for, like, almost all of them are beginners, adult mm -hmm. beginners, some kids, but mainly adults. And also when my when I did my online course, I was also uh, speaking to the, the beginner, because yeah. I find it so hard to imagine that there is a market like for intermediate cellists. I'm just thinking back at when I was at the intermediate stage and, you know, venturing into the professional level. And first of all, I didn't have money to pay someone outside of my school for mm -hmm. extra coaching or extra lessons. And secondly, the thought didn't even occur to me because, because the study in itself was such a strong bubble. Yeah, it was. Re I just didn't think about anything existing outside of that bubble. But apparently, you have discovered that there are people who are looking outside and they are seeking out your coaching. Oh, for sure. And I think, for starters, it helps being around a major metropolitan city that already gives you a boost for that type of market. I graduated from Peabody Conservatory in 1994 
And so one of the first things I started doing was teaching as soon as I graduated. And I did the same thing. It was all beginners for certainly the first five years because I was located in South Jersey outside of Philadelphia. And that was the market. And I was teaching a lot of students. And I also needed to learn how to teach. And I think the best way to really learn how to teach is to start with beginners because you have to break it all down to the beginning fundamentals. And I went back. I had started myself when I was six. I went back and looked at the books that I began on and looked in there and just started to gather the materials that I thought would be most useful and found my way to figuring out these are the method books that work really well for teaching. Here's a pamphlet on how to hold the bow and how to sit properly that has pictures that are helpful, even though we would obviously cover that in the lesson, but then sending the student home with that material would help back that up. And when I moved to Atlanta, I taught for several years more beginners and I would say certainly less advanced students for a while because I was competing with some really fantastic teachers in this city that were getting all the best students, which someday I was hoping would happen to me. And eventually over time, I started to gravitate more towards the middle and high school intermediate level. So now I teach students that have started somewhere else generally, have usually a couple years of experience potentially under their belt with another, hopefully with private lessons, not just in school because they'll be more advanced. And then after they have a few years, that's usually when I tend to find is my sweet spot. So seventh grade, seventh to 12th grade. And it's not a requirement that a student that studies with me wants to go into music or even wants to pursue music. It's just a requirement that they are serious enough that they are willing to practice 45 minutes a day or more on average and that they're not playing the instrument because their mom and dad is making them. Because mm, <laughs> yeah. that can be a bit frustrating too. I don't have a lot of time to teach, so I have a small group of students, usually somewhere between four and six. So I'm fairly selective and I can afford to be selective because of my job. But I think that learning how to teach and being in a market, I think being in a city that has a major metropolitan area, you're going to find those students and those families that are serious enough that want their kids to at least advance enough that if they have the option they could decide to go to music or maybe they want to minor in music or maybe they want to go to a college that they know having that individual music experience is going to help boost their application. Some colleges will give you more scholarship money if you'll play in the orchestra that they have. So there's lots of value in that and also just the value of learning how to face a discipline that is pretty challenging for most people. So I have this philosophy that if you're a really good student in school and everything comes easily to you, it's good to play an instrument because it probably won't come easily to you and it might force you to learn how to work around problems and face problems that you may not have run into in other places. So I think there's a lot of value in learning the language of music and also the discipline, how to short-term plan, how to think about what you're going to do next week on the instrument, but how you're going to six months from now, how you're going to improve, maybe a year from now, long-term planning. So it helps you with all of the aspects that you're going to face in life that 
have nothing to do with music. And it gives you that inner drive and discipline. I think also I find I'm very fortunate that I was in a place where my parents, they struggled with four kids and raising us and it's hard to come up with enough money, but they really prioritized our education and dumped a ton of their resources into our education. And that included music lessons and certain private schools and things like that so that we would be as educated as we could be because it's hard to put a price on that. And they were pushy at times, but also willing to use a significant amount of their resources to make sure I had the opportunity that if I wanted to pursue the goal of music, that I would have that. And I think that those are the families that you're going to find. I happen to live in a fairly wealthy suburban area. So there's more families like that than in places that are potentially more rural or not as metropolitan. Mm. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, it does. And I guess also maybe in the States, and it's stupid to say in the States as one thing, because it's many things. But but here in Scandinavia, it's very common to go to the public music schools, because mm-hmm. they are supported by the state. So they're very, well, affordable compared to private teaching. And it's Uh, I guess not as common to go the private route here as I imagine it is where you are. And when you say private, you're talking about private instrument lessons, not private school versus public school. I'm talking, yeah, private cello lessons. So you actually have a public music school that people can utilize to go learn how to play an instrument? Yes. Yeah, that's a big difference, and I think that... It's possible that in certain parts of Europe and Scandinavia that music and cultural endeavors are more supported than they are in a lot of places in the United States. The United States is very sports-oriented and lots of football programs and sporting events and people really put the highest amount of money and priority in that first. So there's not as much public money going towards things like the creative arts. I see. So are you saying that uh, you don't have uh, space for more pupils or uh, do you have some time for more? Uh, It depends if they can fit into my schedule. I'm pretty close to full, but what I will do is I'm also open to online coaching and listening to people if they're preparing for orchestra auditions, college auditions that that's one of the silver linings of the pandemic is it made virtual more acceptable. Even mm-hmm. just you and I talking right now, I don't I don't know that I would have started a podcast this way because it would have I would have felt it was too daunting to try and line up interviews, but because <laughs> I started in the pandemic, everything has been virtual to the point that I don't really know how to do an interview in person. I think it would present a layer of challenging of challenges that I'm not really prepared for, and it's different. So I think it's the same thing with teaching lessons. It's become much more acceptable. So now, all of a sudden, I can work with a student anywhere in the world in this format. There are obviously some drawbacks. It's always going to be better to be in the same room when it comes to really hearing someone play. But if you have a decent mic setup and you 
can navigate that and get to a pretty realistic setting, you can really help people a lot. And so I've found that if I have a base of students that I teach, that I also have space in my life where I can fit people in here and there for different types of coachings and getting them ready for an orchestra audition, a college audition, which is something I really enjoy. It's really fun working with people that are in that stage of life and especially getting ready for college auditions because that can be a six to 12 month process of really honing that repertoire to the level it needs to be at and getting ready to take those auditions. So that's sort of the spot that I enjoy the most when it comes to teaching. So if the listener is preparing for an audition and they want some extra coaching, they can go to the celloSherpa.com. Yes, thank you for that plug. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. They can reach me there through my phone number. My email is on there. They can reach me through the website. So it's definitely pretty effective as far as communicating with people. And something uh, really cool I saw you at least started doing as well was to make like some uh, some sheets with questions relevant to each podcast episode. Yes. So what happened was I think we put them up for the first five episodes or so called, I think, talking points or something along those lines. Teaching I don't points. Remember. Teaching points. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Good job. You remembered. And it the thinking was that if people assigned their studio in school to listen to an interview, that then they could use that as studio class materials. I will tell you that I got very little feedback on that, and I'm not sure if people have used them. So I didn't continue to put the work in to doing that for every episode and figured I would wait and see if there seemed to be more of a market for that. So so they're there for the first few episodes, and if people want to have that resource, I would obviously continue to do it, but I always wait to hear back from people and see if that's what they want. It's a great idea. Thank it you. Takes, it takes the podcast a little further than the immediacy of listening to something more or less consciously. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the challenge is that, as you know from doing this, that it takes a significant amount of work to line up the interviews, have the interviews, and then do the editing and all of that. And the research on asking the right questions when you're interviewing somebody so you get to know them. Sometimes if you know somebody, that's easier because it doesn't take as much time. But it certainly is a time commitment. So adding another layer of work to it, I'm definitely willing to do, but only if I feel that there's enough interest out there that people will utilize it. Mm. Now, it's been an hour, but I have one more question that I would be really curious to ask you. Do you have time for one more question? Absolutely. Bonus question. So when I was a music student, fairly early on, like I was a teenager, a conductor told us that he always has a safety pin in his violin case in case a button on his clothes falls off just before a concert or something. <laughs> and since then... I've been carrying uh, not just a safety pin in my cello case, but also a paper clip and something to keep my hair in place and a pencil as well as spare strings and even some uh, tape if I have to tape my sheet music for some reason. Would you like to share what you carry with you at all time as a professional cellist? Well, 
I do have the advantage of having a trunk at work that has my extra clothes in it for concerts. So jackets, ties, bow ties. I keep I keep a rock stop in my case just just in case I end up playing somewhere that has a stone floor or something along those lines. Um, What's a rock stop? Oh, a rock. So it's to put on the floor so that when you put the end pin in, the end pin, if you're dealing with some sort of surface where you can't stick the sharp point into it, that it will help hold that. So I usually keep that around. I definitely have, I probably have enough pencils in my trunk until I retire. I always keep them around. It's a little bit easier because I'm, I'm in an environment 90% of the time that I know what to expect. So I have those things, and I, and I always have strings, of course. Uh, I definitely have some sheet music in my trunk, depending on what that is. But I've never, I've never carried a safety pin. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have a paper clip somewhere. I'm trying to think of what else I have in there yeah i think that's probably about it mainly a tuner strings pencil and but i like that maybe maybe i should carry a needle and thread just in case a button pops off in case there's time to (laughs) sew a button back on but i haven't had the other things and usually the other thing is we can rely on oh and i always have an extra bow (laughs) that's important yes yes me too (laughs) but i think a lot of times because there's there's safety and comfort in numbers there's a bunch of us so if you came to work and forgot your bow chances are somebody else will have another bow which Mm. i haven't done if you come to work and forget your cello you're probably out of luck and have to go home and i think most of us usually only do that once and it sounds funny but if you leave your cello at work a lot it's easy to walk out of the house in habit and not remember that you need to bring your cello because you think you left it at work. <laughs> so oh, right. That can so happen. <laughs> right. Not something yeah. to brag about. That's a bit embarrassing, unpacking to find nothing. Well, just to show up and open up your locker or wherever you keep your instrument and have it be empty and then hope that somebody <laughs> maybe has a second cello at work, which probably isn't going to be the case. No. Very rarely, but... I've done that. The The reason I've done it that way, I think it, it only happened to me once and I probably got halfway to work and realized it. But I think it was because I didn't leave through the same exit in my house also. So you get in the habit of walking out. I walk out through my studio into the garage and I'll look left and see if my cello is sitting there. And if it's not, then I know I'm good and I can go to work. But if I left out the front door of my house, I might forget. And once or twice I've gotten in my car and, and whoops, got to go get my cello. <laughs> oh, uh, yes. Or your tails or you bring the wrong clothes because we cha- sometimes you're wearing tails. Sometimes we're wearing all black. Sometimes we're wearing a white coat. Sometimes it's a regular suit. That's an easy thing to mess up too. And all right. we all have these anxiety musician nightmares where we left our pants at home and can't go on stage or they're tuning and you're not dressed and those kinds of Mm. things but in reality when it happens you just go find a colleague that hopefully has something that'll fit you (laughs) yeah it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and i uh, will um, strongly recommend anyone to listen to the cello sherpa podcast where you talk to steven isilis and yo-yo ma and just the the top uh, top of the top, really, among uh, cellists. 
Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I think people will also find there's something other than just cellists there too, even though it's called the Cello Sherpa Podcast. And we are very cello heavy in the interviews, but we've interviewed a nutritionist to talk about proper nutrition in this art form. We've talked about weight training when it comes to musicians and things to be aware of, dealing with performance anxiety and many other instruments too. We've got some woodwinds on there and some other conversations too. So just trying to cover all of it, but leaning heavily into cellists and especially this season i think so far it's been a run of just cellists in it and i've got several more lined up so thank you so much for having me on your podcast i really appreciate it and i'm really glad you're doing this i look forward to your future episodes also thank you for joining us today if you want to leave a comment, you can do so on my website, ragnilvesenberg.com slash podcast, or on Instagram, at the Musician's Journey Podcast. And if you want to leave me a tip in the tip jar, you can do so on ko-fi.com slash the Musician's Journey Podcast. I am happy you're here. Take care. <laughs>